the top players and legends to the very best analysts around the world from wherever the beautiful game is played. This is BTP. Now, we're talking football. Yes, hello folks, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Pitch. I'm your host as always, Phil Brown. Join with my regular co-host here, Cal McFadden. And I must say, delighted to be joined here for the first time in a long pursuit for me at BTP here. The magnificent Chris Sutton, of course, ex-Celtic Chelsea, brilliant footballer in Norwich as well. Uh, delighted to have him on the show. Chris, how you doing, pal? Yes, very, very well, thank you. Yeah, glad to, glad to be invited on, thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. Massive year coming up, of course, uh, possibly 10 in a row for Celtic. That's going to be the target. Um, Celtic have so far brought back uh, Mohamed al Yunusi. What do Celtic need to do and Nilan need to do to th- this summer to make sure that 10 in a row happens? Um, oh, look, I, I think bringing Fraser Forster back would, would be a big deal. That that deal is still up in the air as, as far as I am aware. Um, and... Look, I think keeping Odson Edward is, is key as well. I think he's a fantastic player, Odson Edward. I think he's developed uh, superbly at Celtic. And when you know he was he was brought initially for nine million pounds, I think there were a few eyebrows raised. But you know that was for a development player as such. But he, um, I think he's going to go on to even better things. He's done great things at Celtic. I think he's got got the lot. And uh, I think there'll be a lot of clubs who are looking at him very very closely. Uh, but for Neil Lennon, I think it's key that he keeps Odson Edward with what is at stake. Chris, see if Fraser Foster is, is intent on competing for his place at Southampton, has been reported in the UK press. Who would you go for out of Joe Hart or David Marshall? Um, Dave, well, David Marshall. Um, <laughs> I think Joe. I think Joe Hart um, back in the day was a, a brilliant, brilliant goalkeeper. I, I really, really do. Um, but uh, I have to say, you know, if you if you studied his form closely when he went to Torino and uh, looked at him when he went to, to West Ham and Burnley, then, uh, you know, you have to say he's not the keeper he once was with the greatest respect. I don't think it's a it's a situation where, um, you know, where where Celtic, um, you know, need, need to gamble. And I do think that Joe Hart would would be a gamble in that respect. David Marshall knows the club inside out and uh, I just think plainly he's a better goalkeeper at this moment in time and, and Celtic need uh, a, a stable goalkeeper in that position. Chris, let me ask you about the uh, problem Rangers have with Alfredo Morales. His agent has been allegedly offering him around every word, Napoli being a potential destination, but this probably wouldn't be the best summer to sell Morelos for Rangers to capitalise on him. They, it's probably be the worst time to sell him. Um, I have a two-part question. First of all, would you sell him and how highly do you rate him? Um, look, I think if Rangers want to stop Celtic getting the 10, then, um, then you want to keep your best players. And there's no doubt that, uh, that the first half of uh, the last season, he was in phenomenal form. What happened to him and what happened to the, to the Rangers team um, you know, over the break when they went away to Dubai, God only knows, really. But w- what we do know is they fell off a cliff when they came back. I mean, it was plain to see with the results. They were in a strong position. They'd just played Celtic off the park um, at, at Parkhead on their own backyard and looked as if they were going to really challenge. They didn't challenge the season before, 
they fell away down the final straight and they did so uh, again. So, I mean, if I was Stephen Gerrard, I wouldn't think about, uh, you know, even contemplating selling Morelos. I mean, the question is, you know, if they sold him, are they going to get anybody in better than him? Um, and, you know, I, I, I doubt that very much in terms of how highly do I rate him? I think that he's got something. I do. I think that in terms of Scottish football and centre forwards, Odson Edward is the outstanding centre forward in Scottish football. I think that um, I think that Morelos is is a very very good centre forward, but I think there are parts of his game which he needs to work on. Having said all that, I think in terms of his link-up play last season, I thought he really improved um, with that. I thought his hold-up play and his awareness was very very good in the first part of the season. He scored goals. The the question mark with Morelos, and you know, I, I, I get that people say, well. You know, he plays close to the edge, and, and I understand that. But he's always had issues with his temperament, which he, you know, which he needs to control because people inevitably who play against him will try and wind him up. And he, he just needs to stop falling for the bait. We spoke to Ollie Kay last night, who was very open and honest about Steven Gerrard. He thinks he's he, he's done a good job at Rangers so far, but he doesn't think he would be in contention for the Liverpool job should Klopp decide to leave in the next year or two. How do you assess Steven's impact on Rangers? And as a second part to that question, what does Steven realistically need to challenge Celtic for the 10? Um, well, I mean, yeah, I view it pretty simply. And I think um, I interviewed Neil Lennon a couple of months back and a uh, question to Neil Lennon at that particular time was, you know, do, do you think if you'd gone two seasons without winning something, you'd still be in a job? He answered no. And, you know, I have to say it's it's a surprise to be at a club like Rangers and and go two seasons, um, you know, without winning something. And, and in many respects, still being in a job. Second is last in Glasgow. I said that when Stephen Gerrard got the job. Um, do I think he's improved the team? Yes. Do I think that he would uh, have found it a major disappointment um, that that they haven't won a trophy? Absolutely. Um, but he, you know, he's been backed by the board at Rangers in terms of bringing players in. I think over his time he must have brought in, tw- you know, 25 maybe, you know, near 30 players. So he's been heavily backed. Last season was. Uh, a, a really big one in trying to stop Celtic and and this season um, the pressure is on and, and in many respects the pressure is greater for Steven Gerrard because while of course you know Celtic haven't won the won the ten before and neither of Rangers but uh, but Steven Gerrard wouldn't want to be known as the manager who who didn't stop the ten. Well, some rumours that possibly we could have fans back in the stadium by the end of September. Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon has said that is not uh, a definite. That potentially Aberdeen have talked about maybe having 7,500 fans in by the end of September. How important is it going to be for Scottish football, Chris, to get fans in the stadium as quick as possible? Um yeah, of course, vitally important. I think you know all over all over the world we want to see uh, fans back in stadiums as quickly as possible, but only when it's safe. I think Scotland um, has. I saw a uh, a poll the other day. I think it has uh, more more fans who who go uh, you know per per capita to watch Scottish football than any other country in Europe, which tells you how much the Scottish people love the football up there. And they are really reliant. Scottish football clubs are reliant 
on gate receipts more than if you look down south, you know, the English Premier League and the riches with all the TV money, which they get, that isn't the same in Scotland. So Scottish football clubs need fans back in the stadiums. But of course, you know, we're, we're in a time where over here at the moment, Leicester is in lockdown uh, and there's uh, a lot of uncertainty everywhere. And so nobody knows which is what, you know, what is going to happen in, in the next month or two. But of course, we want to see football fans back in the stadium. They're the, they're the lifeblood of the game. Football without fans, the great Jock Steen said, is nothing. And that's, uh, yeah. that's hard to argue with. How do you assess the state of Scottish football, Chris? You've been covering it for many years. The, the financial situation isn't ideal across the world, never mind in Scottish football, that doesn't have a, a great deal of cash anyway. Reconstruction was proposed. It didn't go through. Do you think that would have benefited the game? And as I say, how do you assess the state of play post-COVID? Uh, what, what do you mean the state of Scottish football? What, what, what do you mean by that? In terms of finances, Celtic obviously oh. have got the muscle in Europe, but can the, the other clubs, Rangers are near as challengers, but clubs like Aberdeen, Hibs have, talk, have talked about having to really cut back. Could that damage yeah. the game in terms of the state of play as a league as a whole? Yeah, I think not just in Scottish football, but but all over Europe. We've seen uh, down south Wigan. Um, I think they've gone into administration, and and these are these are worrying times. Uh, hence, you know, the the previous question about getting fans back in the stadiums. You know, yeah. Scottish football clubs, um, you know, need to raise money to to pay the players, and you know, across the board, it's a it's a really difficult. Uh, situation at this time. You're quite right. Hibs have, have, have asked players to make uh, to to take cuts, and that's going to be, I think that's going to, I'm not saying it's going to become the norm, but certainly um, you know many teams will do the same because ultimately clubs need to survive. If the clubs don't survive, their players aren't going to get paid. So we're in unprecedented times where. I think that everybody's looking for a bit of common sense and you know there's going to be some tough periods for a lot of clubs but we just want to see clubs getting through this period and then hopefully when there's an end to this covid if there is an end then we can you know we can look forward uh, and and you know there will be a, a a rosier future to come hopefully Chris, you look at some of the young players at Celtic, Celtic are in a strong position to be able to handle these types of things. You look at Nexus Jeremy Frimpong, who came up last season, of course, from Man City. He's a young player of the year, fantastic young talent. Mikey Johnson, as you were talking about, Alton Edward, Ager, and of course, um, Karamoko Dembele coming through, fantastic young talent. How good are these young players in comparison to previous young generations that came through at Celtic? Um, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to judge. Um, <clears throat> You know, I think the Celtic, in terms of developing young players, they've, they've tried to do it for years. They were trying to do it back in in uh, in, in my day. The likes of Aidan McGeady came to the fore. Sean Maloney um, came up through the ranks. It, it's difficult because, you know, it's very difficult for young players because at Celtic and at Rangers, it's all about winning. So you actually have to be, you have to have something about you to, to first of all, get up and train with the first team and then, Try and get the, the first team place, and of course, competition um, or competing in European competition as well. Um, is, you know, is it, very difficult to play at that level. Now, Neil Lennon and Steven Gerrard, they can't uh, be in a position where they that, where they have time, sort of, and say to young players, "Well, we'll give you six or eight games to bed in 
and take a risk because if Celtic and Rangers don't win those games, then the, the managers uh, are under massive pressure. I was really, really impressed um, with Jeremy Frimpong. I, I really like yeah. him. I like his attitude. I like his desire. I think he's a, you know, a very talented footballer, and that was a, a great piece of business. Mikey Johnston, at the start of last season, watching him in preseason, he was Celtic's best player, and I thought he was going to have an enormous season last season, but I think he had injury uh, issues, which certainly didn't help him. I think that Celtic this season will be looking at him and thinking, you know, we hopefully will get a bit more consistency out of him. I think he's a uh, a real, real talent. And uh, ultimately, Scottish football, that's, uh, you know, developing from within is, is the key. And when you think that, uh, you know, you look at, you know, signings that both clubs have made, but Celtic, I've mentioned Odson Edward, a £9 million development player when they bought him, Olivia and Sham, £4.5 million, a development player when they brought him. That is that is the model for Celtic and a, and, and a model for Scottish clubs. It's a very, very difficult market for Scottish clubs to shop in. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a pretty uh, obvious thing uh, to say. And they're not going to get everyone right because... You know they can't they can't buy the finished article, so they have to take a little bit of a gamble. That makes scouting very very difficult. But ultimately, you know, Celtic want to get into a a situation where they are developing players from within um, at, at a at, at a better rate than what they are doing. That that is the aim. And over the years, I think being frank, um, you know, both Celtic and Rangers and people may argue with me for this haven't got enough good players up through the ranks into the first team. That's something which I think both clubs will will be trying to address. Another thing that always interests me about Scottish football is the amount of talent that's went down to the Premier League in recent years. You look at Andrew Robertson, Virgil van Dijk, Kieran Tierney's down there now. John McGinn has been doing really well with Aston Villa, unfortunate to pick up an injury. Do you feel, Chris, that English clubs should take the Scottish market more seriously than they do at times? Um, yeah, it's up, it's up to them, but you know, I do. I, you know, I was astounded um, with the Virgil Van Dyke situation um, back at the time. I think um, when he was at Celtic and linked with the move, John Stones was moving for fifty million pounds from uh, Everton to Manchester City, and I was looking at Virgil Van Dyke and looking at John Stones and thinking. John Stones isn't a better player than Virgil van Dijk. He's a very, very good prospect. But you can't tell me Virgil van Dijk is a quarter of the player that John Stones is. And that that was never the case. So I, I certainly take your point that there. I think there's a view from down south that the Scottish League isn't very strong and uh, and is difficult to judge. But when you look at the likes of the players you have mentioned, I mean, McGinn was an absolute snip, wasn't he? He was, what, three, I think, was yeah. it three, three and a half million or something? Yeah. Like, may have even been a, less than that. Yeah, it surprised me that Celtic didn't go all in for McGinn. You know, I'd seen enough of him to realise he was a, a talented player. And what is he worth now? I, I think more uh, pertinently, Andrew uh, Robertson's a, a fantastic story, isn't he? Um, you know, for any young player, Looking at Andrew Robertson's career, uh, things didn't work out for him when he was young and he did the hard yards and grafted and 
I mean, he's one of the best players in the Premier League down south now. Uh, that, that's a great story. So I think that um, I think English clubs have taken the Scottish League and Scottish clubs too lightly in that respect. And, and maybe they would have learned lessons from that when, you know, you look at Van Dyke moving for 12, 13 million to Southampton and then, what was it, 75 million a couple of years later to uh, to Liverpool. That tells its own story. Chris, last question for me. I wanted to ask you about a, a story Henrik Larson was talking about um, in the Lockdown Tactics podcast. Uh, he said that when he was at Celtic, his brother passed away due to a drug overdose, uh, something that I had no idea about uh, that was affecting him mentally at the time. Of course, this is a question about mental health. Um, was that something you were aware of? Um, I was aware that his brother had, uh, had passed away. I, I wasn't aware of um, the whole story with that, Phil, if I'm honest. So, you know, that's that's difficult for me to comment on that. Um, Just from the bigger the bigger issue that, you know, is very, very important. He talks about how important it is to talk for men, of course, during, his, during mental health, especially during lockdown. And the, the, the wider question of making sure that we all reach for resources during this difficult time. Um, and so I just wanted to commend Henrik Larson for speaking up on that issue and, uh, of course, bringing the wider point of mental health because it also reflects exceptionally well on him that he was able to focus on his career, but also to bring that into the, the public uh, the, the public view and talk about that. was in, It's quite incredible um, because I think he said that you were the best striker that he played with. So uh, it's a hell of a compliment from Henrik. No, I mean, you know, I... I uh... I had my, I would say my best years at Celtic uh, playing with Henrik. I had a good time at Norwich City, good young team being brought up there. And then Blackburn Rovers winning the Premier League down south. But then because of the time I had at Chelsea, the bad time, the first time in my career, really, mm. uh, that things didn't go well for me. When I went to Celtic uh, and, and started to really enjoy my football, uh, again under Martin O'Neill playing with the likes of, of Henrik Glass and I really appreciated what I had um, yeah. if that makes any sense in, in, the, in the, you know, the time from Norwich City all the way through Blackburn everything was a natural progression so to go to Celtic of course the size of the club uh, and, and to play with the players who I played with in that period under Martin O'Neill was, you know, was an absolute pleasure and you know, you, you, you mentioned Henrik Larsson. Um, he was a phenomenon. I knew I knew he was good when I first went up, and I, I thought that um, that you know I could uh, I could compliment him pretty well. Um, but I, I always felt that um, that he was never really appreciated enough around the world uh, until he left Celtic. We all knew how good he was. Celtic fans did. Swedish fans did. He had a, a tremendous strike rate. Uh, internationally for for Sweden, but then when he went and turned the 2006 Champions League final on its head, when he came off came off the bench and a couple of incisive passes, I think that people may have thought that Henrik Larsson's just a brilliant goalscorer. He was far more than that. He was a team player. He had absolutely everything. Could play in a number of positions. He could play as a ten, a wide player. Uh, he had absolutely everything. And of course, he went to Manchester United when. Mm -hmm. At the end of his career, when he wasn't physically, of course, what he was in in his mid to, to late twenties, and and Manchester United fans speak of him in in such 
high regard. That, that summed him up as a, uh, a, you know, as a player and a man. Very much so. Just before you go, Chris, could, I was wondering if you could give us an insight into what it was like working with Martin and Neil during those years at Celtic, because a manager who a lot of people say wasn't on the training field every day, but he commanded respect and, and, and had the respect of every single person at the club. Yeah, I'd never sort of been big into this stuff, a manager who wasn't on the training field every day. Uh, you know, I think that that's slightly misleading and unfair, the perception that that gave of Martin. What Martin O'Neill did for, for Celtic Football Club, we, you know, you have we have to look back deep. You have to look back into the, the 90s where Rangers were dominant. And look where Celtic are today. Without Martin O'Neill, there's a strong argument to suggest that Celtic wouldn't be in this position today. Martin turned the, the tide north of the border. He went in, and uh, the first season he went in, I think the, the gap the previous season had been 21 points. Rangers had beaten Celtic by. That is emphatic. The first season he goes in, Celtic, we, we won the treble. And Rangers were a very, very strong side. They you know, were, were, were buying some fantastic players uh, during the, you know, the years Martin O'Neill was there, the likes of, uh, you know, the, the De Boers, um, who were, you know, you're, you're talking about world-class players. They had uh, Van Bronckhurst, Arthur Newman, they were Michael Moles. They were a really strong outfit. So to, to, to be able to go up at Celtic, uh, you know, Celtic manager and, and topple that Rangers team, um, was was something special. The stuff about um, you know wasn't wasn't the training. I mean, Martin O'Neill as a manager would uh, would take training some days, and other days he would delegate. He had a coach, Steve Walford, and, and tell Steve Walford what to do. That was that was never a, a, a very big deal, and I think you know sort of deeply unfair on Martin. I mean, Martin totally transformed the whole club. Everybody loved him to the. You know, to the 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 tea lady, to uh, to the office staff. I think he made a point of, uh, you know, really, um, you know, getting everybody on board. The Lisbon Lions loved him. Everybody loved Martin, and uh, and that was key. He's an infectious personality, um, and I think, you know, even today you look back and talk to to Celtic fans about that era. They remember that era extremely fondly. People, I don't think people forget. They knew that we were a side uh, in European football who could go toe-to-toe with absolutely any team uh, mm-hmm. in, in Europe on our night. I'm not saying we were better than than every team in Europe. Of, of course, we weren't, but we were very, very capable. And that, that was the team that Martin O'Neill built. Martin O'Neill gave us so many great nights under the lights at Celtic Park in, in the Champions League. I think we lost one game in his in his tenure, and that was when... Guess who came back and uh, <laughs> uh, and upset the apple cart, Henrik? Um, <laughs> yeah, was, you know, but but that was that was a phenomenal <laughs> period to be part of, and yeah. um, and I, I I think I owe Martin a lot. He resurrected um, you know my career when I had had the bad season at Chelsea, but it wasn't just that. He you know the, there's a strong argument to say that. He turned Celtic round to, you know, and, that, and that's because of, of what he did, um, you know, why they are so dominant today. I come from Belfast, obviously. I, a lot of my friends are Celtic fans. It, uh, 
they hold you in such high regard, Chris, um, for what you did at the club and, of course, what you continue to do. Uh, we're so honest with your uh, your opinions, and I think as football fans, we all appreciate that. So thank you so much for taking the time. I'm privileged to have you on the show, and I really appreciate you doing this, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Phil. Thank you, Callum. Thank you. Cheers. Brilliant.